Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, another listener question episode. Thanks, sponsors. Top Spinini Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. I'll cut through a bunch of them. Thanks for your questions. Send them to Dr. James Beckett at gmail.com. And some are sent through YouTube, which I have a very small presence there, but most of them come through email or people seeing me at shows, so I intersperse some of those. Can't use all the questions, but a bunch of them I can deal with and I get behind, so be patient. First is from my friend John Keating, commenting on one of the later ramblings with Rich, where we talked about the dollar boxes and how Rich has extra well-developed conscience with respect to if he gets something that's above and beyond. And he did get something that really was exceptional. Then he went back to the dealer. John Keating's point is that everybody is winning above the collector. The collector should be allowed to win from a bargain box without guilt. I'm sure the guilt is self-imposed and there's no crime that Rich has committed. He's just a mensch. He's just a really good guy. That's what helps him to sleep well at night. I sleep fine at night, but I'm also not getting that big of cards there. I'm not looking for what Rich is looking for. I may have passed that by because I'm not really looking for vintage in a dollar box. That's why Rich and I get along great. When we go through a dollar box, he could go through first and I could go through second or vice versa. And we're generally picking different stuff. So if I get a $10 card or a $20 card, that's fine. But he got a $400 card. And so guilt may not be the exact word. He just is a good guy. I want to create a level playing field and so does Rich. But it's not a level playing field when you go to a card show. The dealer should have an advantage. The dealer should be more expert than the person walking. Now, that's not always true because Rich is an expert. I'm an expert. But they are clearly willing sellers. So nobody's duping them. They're putting the cards in the box. And the way I look at it, I'm going to look through the box. This is what they priced. I'm going to work up what the price would be based on the quantity in advance. And I'm going to be ready to just pull and enjoy. Like I said, when I get home, I pool all the cards. I've usually bought from several dealers at a show and I'll bring them all home. And then I can't exactly remember where I got what. But again, nothing was so exceptional that I would feel any guilt at all. Second question. Mookie Chilson says he gets the same queasy feeling that I get when I'm checking out of the dollar box. They're going to say, why? That's too good a stuff. You took me to the cleaners. Mookie, I just agree. I get that sinking feeling and it's never happened. It did happen to somebody that I saw, but it wasn't that. It was based on the presumption that this guy was going to get a discount and he didn't get a discount and he was miffed. And that's frustrating. But still, if it's a dollar box and you pay a dollar, you get the cards. Now, the question comes up in these dollar box things, but I don't generally tell my friends necessarily. I guess if somebody had a non-overlapping strategy for pulling cards such that I knew, like Rich, he's looking for vintage. But if he sees stuff that he thinks I might like, he said, you might try that. I'll go over there. But there's guys that I see frequently. Every show, I'm going to see some of the same guys. And they might get before me, they might get after me, they might start with baseball and I start with football or vice versa. And yet when somebody pulls 100 cards out of a box and then I go after him, I could pull 100 cards out of the box. If I'd gone first, maybe I'd have pulled 110. It's a little fraternity within a fraternity of people that do the dollar boxes. But I'm doing fine. I'm not eager to tell everybody exactly what I pull because I want to have the enjoyment of doing that. Next one from Golden Slumber talking about card flipping, saying when he was flipping cards, he didn't feel the need to put initials on them 
but he still flipped him, and he did flipping games of odd and even. And he thinks that I had the foresight to put away my better cards and not flip those where the flipped cards got thrown out by my mom. I can assure you that was not foresight. That was probably my mom having a measured lesson. She didn't throw away all the cards, but those were the cards that were put out. I may have been practicing flipping against the wall. And frankly, I did not do flipping games that were not games of skill. If it's just a game of chance and maybe it's odd, maybe it's even, I don't think it's pretty hard to figure out how you're going to flip a card. It needs to turn over a couple of times. There's a way to drop a card and just floats down, but that was not allowed. So generally I was doing close to the wall, the leaners, that kind of stuff. That's a game of skill. And so that's probably why my cards were on the floor is that I was practicing flipping against the wall. And those were the cards. And it was a bunch. It was hundreds of cards. It wasn't thousands of cards, but it was hundreds of cards that got thrown in the dumpster that were my flipping cards, I think. So again, I'm really not in favor of anything in the hobby that's just a game of luck. I'm in favor of creating a game of skill where you have extra knowledge. When I'm on the treadmill, I watch TV programs and things that are just interesting, probably a Netflix or something, but it's bingeable and it's called Patriot. It's pretty gruesome at times. But one of the points in it is that two of the main characters, or three actually, are super adept at rock, paper, scissors. And so they just tie repeatedly because... Each one of them is so expert that they, at the last minute, can do rock, paper, or scissors, and they just tie repeatedly. That is seemingly a game of luck, but they've turned it into a game of skill. Several times during the 10 episodes, one of those people will just say, hey, let's do rock, paper, scissors, and whoever wins will go that way. But some people are really good at just recognizing that. Next question from High Speed Card Chase. Have you ever seen one of your initialized childhood cards at a show? No. And mainly, it's because mainly I'm not looking for vintage. Because 61 tops would be the main ones I had initials on. 60 perhaps some, maybe some 59s, but 59, 60, 61. I'm mainly looking at the card fronts. I'm mainly not looking for vintage. But you will see, almost damaged is too strong a word, but if it's a nice vintage card and it's got initials on the back, Rich could pick that up. If it was a 61 tops for a dollar or less, Rich might pick that up, especially if it was a player that he knew. If he saw JB on the back, maybe he'd bring it over, but that's the way Rich does it. Okay, next was from Stooks, talking about trimming. When I did the episode on trimming, there was actually an outtake from Hobby Hotline, and I hate deceptive trimming of cards. I think people are entitled to do whatever they want to their own cards, but if they submit them to grading knowing that they have deceptively trimmed the card, it's not a crime, but it's certainly unethical. Duke's question, is AI good enough at this point in time to detect each card as unique? Basically, I don't think it's really artificial intelligence that's doing that. It's a super-duper high-res camera and very special balanced lighting and dust removal, fingerprints, all those kind of things to where the card is treated in a way, looking at it 360, a sideways look, not just the front and the back, but actually looking at the edges. Yes, I think cameras can do that. I think they're getting better and better. Tag is is trying to do that. And Tag, to its credit in their technology, they get the same number pretty much every time. There's no variability there. Now, whether they're coming up with a grade that you're happy with, whatever that grade is, it's going to be the same grade if you bring it to them a day later, a year later, whatever. But the point is, their cameras are supposedly state-of-the-art, and they're lighting. 
And so that's really what it is, Stukes, more than AI. I think the AI is the learning that will occur as mistakes are corrected and adjusted in software or whatever. Okay, next one from Rock. And he was criticizing Greg Morris in a way that Greg will be pleased, I think, because he said, Greg Morris overgrades cards and why people pay graded prices and more for these is laughable. Rock, Greg Morris will be very happy to hear that because I think most of his criticism is that he undergrades the cards. So if some people think he overgrades the cards, then that's the kind of balanced criticism. When I was doing the price guides, if everybody said I'm too high or everybody said I'm too low or gave that feedback to our team out on the road, we wanted some balance. It'd be nice if everybody said, hey, you're perfect. But usually people say, yeah, but you're a little high or a little bit low. And we would investigate that. But for Greg Morris, he's built a business. I think he wants to get more criticism that he's undergrading than he's overgrading. Overgrading to him means returns and additional work. The next one, Papa Jim, he said most of his memorabilia is authenticated by JSA. That's not Beckett authenticated, but JSA used to have a relationship with Beckett. But JSA is independent. And he says that when they're at shows, they're always very helpful explaining why something did or did not pass their authentication process. I think that's terrific. Now, Papa Jim, if they're explaining why it did pass, I just want to know if it didn't pass. And my problem with that, and I don't know if you've had this or anybody else has had this, I care why it didn't pass their authentication. But even more, I'm concerned when I get something back from any of them, from Steve Grad, from any reputable authenticator. I want to know why they think it's not good. Sometimes they'll tell you that. It's not so I can do anything to it other than to know if I ever come across another one. But it's frustrating to me when it's inconclusive. I've gotten cards back, good cards, and they say, we're not sure, it's inconclusive, which means they can't slab it or sticker it or authenticate it. Then you're trying to think, do I go to another authenticator and see if it looks good to them? I don't think that's necessarily bad. If they say it's inconclusive, it it just means they're not sure. They have rejects, they have acceptances, and then they have inconclusive. Question from RK. It's actually Rich Klein. (laughs) And we may talk about this further, but he said something came up on Hobby News Daily about Jason Schwartz of Sabre thought he remembered that a T206 Wagner was sold during an auction at one of the big Detroit shows back in the 70s and that there was a phone auction component. That just seems outrageous now, but it's possibly true. I didn't hit every Detroit show, but I hit a lot of them in the 70s. That was the closest big city to me when I was in Bowling Green. And I do know that Plank was auctioned off that way. I know that Lajue was auctioned off that way, and lots of other really good cards. Now, what's not outrageous about it is most of the auctioneers, Bill Mastro, Rob Lifson, Don Steinbeck, Frank Nagy, Pat Quinn, a lot of those people that had the auctions in those days were in the room. And there was a lot of money in the room such that you needed in those days. The big hitters were at the big Detroit shows. And so not so outrageous that it would just be a crony auction where only a few people. No, the people that really had interest in it, many of whom were in the room, they could look at the card, they could see the card, and to allow for phone bidders, proxies. So that very likely could have happened. And Rich and I will further discuss that. Then last one here from Matt. He had a 52 Wheaties uncut panel. And he talked about, my opinion is that it's a complete box. It's at least the box and the side panel. 
And he says his opinion is that it should be valued around 2000 or 3000 bucks or more because there's so many Hall of Famers and the cards are uncut. They could be cut. So what are your thoughts? I have seen like this. It's not one of a kind. There, Wheaties sold millions of boxes of cereal. And the 52 Wheaties panels that had multi-sport guys, they're great. But what something should be valued at and what it is valued at, I'm not sure you'd get that much for it. The problem sometimes is if you have a full box with those, probably not poisonous, but it's probably not edible either. But a lot of times back panels, Matt, you don't see the side panel as much unless you see the whole box. It may be rare to you, but back in the 70s, of course, that was closer to when it came out. You saw those and they're wonderful collectibles. But the moral of the story is if you think that's what it's worth, then put it on eBay or put it somewhere where you have a platform where you can do a buy it now and it's fixed price. If you try to sell it for 3000 and it doesn't go for 3000 then 2500 then you try 2000 If it didn't sell for 2000 then you can keep lowering it or you could put it in an auction. The problem is sometimes when you put it in an auction, when something's been out there with an asking price, sometimes it makes it look like the item is more prevalent than it is. And, but if I were you, it's your collectible. Put a price on it and see what happens. And when it sells, that's great. If it sells for what you think, you've lost the chance to sell it for more. But I think that's an aggressive price. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Another good listener question episode. I'll be back again in a couple of days. The man in the house.